Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Sportsman's Voice Podcast your inside connection to the outdoor legislation. From the beltway to policy happening your way, we're covering it all. I'm your host, Fred Bird. Join us as we explore public land access, wildlife and fisheries management, Second Amendment rights, the triumphs that shape our nation, the sports we all love, and the stories that fuel our passion for the great outdoors. This is the Sportsman's Voice Podcast. Welcome in, friends. Thanks so much for tuning back into the Sportsman's Voice podcast. Glad to have you along for the ride for the day. We're going to get into a new episode here and welcome in my colleague, Chris Horton, the Director of Fisheries Policy for CSF. And then we're going to be joined by Mike Leonard of the American Sport Fishing Association, ASA. Uh, we're talking rigs to reef. We're going to talk about whales and then get an update of uh some some fishing policy here in the new year. This program was uh, recorded back at NASC, uh, as some of the last bit of sound has been. Uh, as like I told you in the beginning, we got so much great content out of there. Uh, all of it's still very relevant and wanting to share it with you all. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk fisheries. We haven't really uh, delved into that here on this particular program, and I'm glad we get to. And this is a great conversation between Mike, uh, Chris, and myself. So. Uh, Sit back, relax, tune in, and uh, let's let's get into it uh, with Mike and Chris. Thanks so much. Very good. Okay. Well, we're rolling, so let's get into it. I'm joined now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, by uh, Senior Director of Fisheries Policy, Chris Horton from CSF, and Mike Leonard with American Sport Fishing Association, ASA. Mike, what's uh, tell the folks your, your title over there at ASA? I am the Vice President of Government Affairs. Very good. A man in the know. So. With the time we have here, and it is, as the audience has heard, this is a very packed schedule and agenda, so um, we'll take advantage of the time we have. I want to bring you guys in here, uh, give us updates, talk to the audience a bit about Riggs to Reef. Uh, did I say it right? Riggs to Reef. Okay, I, I, sometimes I turn, turn, turn things up yep. upside down in my head, and I want to make sure I got it right. So uh, what that's all about, why people need to care about it, and then um, you know, we can go from there and get a, a general update on Fisheries policy going into 2024, we get an election year. Uh, certainly there was some controversy closing out uh, probably third quarter down uh, down the Atlantic. So um, let's do the Rigs to Reef first. You guys want to touch on that and explain to the folks what, uh, what that's all about. All right. Yeah, thanks, Fred. Uh, you know, we got a lot of things we're working on, but uh, one of the new initi- initiatives that, we're, um, that we're, we're tackling here pretty soon is, is one called Rigs to Reefs. Uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, 
1947, we installed the first offshore oil and gas platform. Um, once we did that, we actually started altering the marine environment for the better. Mm-hmm. I mean, and not just for anglers, but for critters, uh, for, for the whole marine ecosystem and productivity of the Gulf. Um, so it did, let me interject yep. because general audience will think that's counterintuitive. So explain why that structure is beneficial. Absolutely. Well, prior to that, the Gulf, um, of Mexico, the, the seafloor is primarily, primarily mud and sand bottom. There wasn't a lot of hard substrate for organisms to attach to and grow on. Um, so when you put a hard structure uh, in a marine environment, stuff starts to grow on it. Yeah. And so you get microalgae, you get barnacles, which are able to, to harvest or harness the nutrients that are uh, just drifting by in the water column that otherwise would have just drifted out to sea and be able to start assimilating those nutrients into biomass locally. And then that just continues to build on the, on the trophic scale up to crustaceans and corals and then fish, small fish, and then bigger fish all the way up to dominant predators that we like to chase as mm-hmm. anglers, uh, red snapper, sharks, amberjack, uh, a number of species. So uh, over time, since 1947, we've had as many as 7,000 oil and gas platforms mm. uh, and just tremendous amount of, of, of habitat. And if you've ever fished offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, you've probably fished on, on an oil and gas platform mm. uh, because they're, they're fished from bottom to top and you yeah. never know what you're going to catch. Uh, unfortunately. We're seeing a lot of those being removed at a pretty, pretty high rate. Once a rig is finished producing, uh, it has to be what's called decommissioned. So by law, it has to be removed and the substrate returned to its, what it was before it was even constructed. So we lose that habitat mm. essentially. Um, but in 1984, there was an act passed that basically provided a pathway for platform owners to be able to donate those structures to a state's rigs to reef program. Mm. As you can imagine, permitting requirements and process is pretty cumbersome to do that for a state to assume the responsibility of that platform. And it takes anywhere from two to four years to do it. So not a big deal off, uh, off for the Gulf states that, that have oil producing, um, structures off the shore, all have, uh, approved reef fish, uh, programs. Uh, so they're, They've got the infrastructure and the network in place to be able to accept those. The problem is, is just timing uh, because they all have one coordinator, one or two people at max working on these transitions. And, and again, that's fine if you just have a dozen coming out a year across the Gulf. But what we're seeing right now, uh, there's actually over 300 that are in the decommissioning process. Wow. Um, so we're just, we're going to lose a big majority of those. Of those 300, only 73 have been committed to rigs uh, reef. So when you say decommission, that is total removal of the structure. Yes. Top to bottom. It just, it's gone from the water. Yep. That's correct. And the thing is, whether they take it to shore and scrap it, or they leave it out there for Rick's Reef and the state's Rick's Reef program, the well associated with it has to be capped and plugged and safely abandoned, just like in either case. So there's no concern about hydrocarbon Uh loss or leakage. So uh, it's perfectly safe to leave these things leave these things out there. But does the whole uh, above water structure have to say, I mean, obviously you don't want it to be completely submerged. Otherwise people know, don't know where it is unless you're marking it, right? So what does that look like? No, it does about, about uh, it is required to be, most of them are eight, have to be 80 feet below. Is that right? Yeah. So how are we marking them out there? GPS. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're pretty accurate nowadays. No kidding. Yep. That's fantastic. So they, it has to be 80 feet for navigation purposes and yep. concerns about 
you know, uh, ship traffic striking. Right, exactly right. But there has been some deviations of uh, 60, 65 feet under the surface and in, in areas that are uh, with a lot less shipping traffic, but that's kind of a case-by-case basis. Uh, negotiation with the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, the U.S. Coast Guard, and so from the American Sport Fishing Association standpoint, I mean, obviously with this created habitat and the opportunity for anglers to go out there, it has been created over these last many decades. The obvious concern is fish are going to be gone if you remove that habitat. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a as is often the case with fisheries, it's a complicated topic. Uh, you know, I think in general. There are some, you know, just sort of anti-oil and gas at all costs mm-hmm. interests at play here. But in general, a lot of it just comes down to liability. And, you know, the, these structures have ended their useful oil-producing life. Um, the oil companies aren't necessarily uh, eager to get them out of the water if there's a possibility to leave them out there uh, as reefing uh, platforms. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of it comes down to dollars and cents and liability and um, the urgency to get them out uh, if, if they're not going to have that other structure. So... A lot of it is just sort of connecting those dots of getting these reefs to reefs programs connected uh, with with companies, getting all the liability figured out, the the costs associated with it, getting the the the, the structures um, redesigned to where they they meet all the the safety requirements. Um, but you know that all has to happen pretty quickly and uh, and very well coordinated because if it doesn't, the companies are going to say, all right, well, decommissioning deadlines are coming up. We're going to get them out of the water soon. Wow. So. There is definitely a heavy level of, you know, regulatory, state, agency, nonprofit coordination, resources that has to come to bear pretty quickly. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, things can, can, can get complicated uh, and, and where you can start to see expedited timelines to get these things out of the water if, those, if all those dots aren't connected at, the, at a quick enough time. Frame. It's not just a negative for the angling community to not have these things out there, to not support the fisheries and then, and then like you said, Chris, a new, new habitat. There's a whole economic system built up around these things. Like it would, I think it would be devastating to have these things removed, and all these Gulf Coast communities that depend on the 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 hobby of angling and that access that would just be devastating. Yeah, I mean, I've seen videos of uh, you know a lot of times it's explosives that are used uh, as part of the decommissioning, and the amount of marine biomass that you see come floating the surface. I mean, it's tragic no. to, to see because it, these are. You know, meccas, they're, they're you know, as, as productive of ecosystems as you'll find anywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time haggling over, you know, red snapper quotas and regulations and, and the emberjack and all these species that, uh, you know, a good size of that overall biomass is associated with these structures. And you take those out of the water and that's, you know, that's lost uh, abundance, that's lost fishing opportunities. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's often just sort of a forgotten about part of the equation, but yeah. uh, this is a huge part of, you know, what drives fishing opportunity and fishing access in the region. So as you're, as you're speaking, I'm coming, I mean, these thoughts are coming into my head that, now I'm curious about the people that, I don't want to call them environmentalists and such, but for lack of a better term for me to come up with at this point in the summit, that's what I'm going to call them. It seems... It seems counterintuitive because on one hand, it seems like that group of people says, get them out of here. It's, it's not natural. You know, it's oil and gas and the whole things. But then when they do remove them, they remove the things they're advocating for, right? Right. And what's the, what's the, <laughs> is it an internal struggle that they just get over? And like, how does that work out? How do they reconcile that? I, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, it is, uh, it is a paradox. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, and it, you know, this is kind of getting a little bit of a side road, but, um, Getting back to the fisheries management part of this, you know, there's often a um, a bit of an academic 
debate over are these actual fish producers or are they just aggregators? Mm-hmm. And uh, you have a hard time convincing me. I have a fishery science background. I've forgotten most of that stuff. But just anecdotally, looking at these structures, and as Chris said, you're, you're taking habitat that was previously muddy, sandy, flat bottom, okay. putting structure that congregates the entire food chain together. You're having a, you would have a hard time convincing me that there's not increased overall abundance as a result of that. So for then, folks to say, yeah, but all this is doing is just helping you all catch fish faster and, and depleting stocks. And uh, the, the net negative impact of these structures uh, of anything to do with oil and gas is worse. But again, these things have already, uh, you know, it, it extended their entire oil producing lifespan. Uh, you know, if we're worried about bigger picture, you know, uh, carbon emissions and that type of thing, that's that debate's already passed because mm-hmm. these structures aren't aren't contributing to that anymore. So um, anyway, it is sort of a paradox of how you sort of reconcile. We care about fisheries, uh, but yet we're okay with destroying these structures that yeah. are so vital to our fisheries. So this leads me to the next rabbit hole to fall down. So uh, Tom Oprey David is well, part of his new film there, um, and there's a the big theme of it is is the removal of people in the highlands of Scotland. I'm not doing it justice, but there's a, there's a rewilding effort, right? Returning this to some form of what it used to be. I'm not sure if I'm appropriately connecting the dots here, but it seems like there may be a sect of people that want to see these things gone. Will argue that they never existed before, and there's a rewilding effort of the Gulf back to muck and mire, even if they're not calling it that. Is that, that is that appropriate? Like, this is how it was in the beginning, and this is how it should be, it, not sustaining life, maybe at the micro level in, in the dirt, but, I mean, what? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question, um, because this wouldn't actually be rewilding. It would just be turning to the condition it was before yeah. gas exploration began, which is poor habitat, no. less biomass, less abundance out there. Because literally, the, the, the amount of natural reef in the Gulf of Mexico is, is very limited very limited. And we've been able to augment that with, with artificial structures. But question, and, and this is perpetual with any species management, we're managing just some sort of standard, historic standard, or mm-hmm. idea of what a historic standard was. But things changed. I mean, things are constantly changing. We have climate change going. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study in 2004 looking at coral assemblages uh, on platforms in the northern Gulf of Mexico. They found 11 different species. Out of those are commonly found in the Caribbean where you think corals are, uh, when you think about corals, you think about Keys and, and uh, Bahamas and, and Caribbean. Uh, we have them on these platforms too. And in, of those nine, two of them are on the IUCN, International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the, kind of the global watch list. Man. Uh, two of them are actually on the critically endangered list. Where their populations are declining elsewhere, and they're they're thriving, thriving there in the Gulf. So we got changing climate, changing conditions. We have uh, a couple of species that are critically endangered elsewhere that are doing well here. Yet we're going to take them out for the sake of going back to the way it was before these structures were installed. Yeah, I I, I don't mean this uh, as an insult, but I think you're overthinking it, Fred. I do that. I know. I listen, I do that a lot. I, you know, I think it's a, it's a more, uh, overly simplistic, again, what I was saying before of, you know, there's deadlines that, that, uh, companies have to get these things out of the water unless there's an alternative reefing, uh, program in place. So that's part of it. I think the, the struggle and opposition comes from groups that are just less inclined to help 
you know, that, that, that are going to sort of sit on the sidelines and say, yeah, we're not going to support those efforts. We're going to sort of, we're okay with letting these go by because of just fundamental, anything that has anything to do with oil and gas development, we're going to be against. Uh, so the rewilding thing's an interesting theory. I think it's, it's, it's not quite as nuanced as that. I think it's just yeah, really I, simplistic. We don't like oil and gas, no matter what. This is kind of sort of putting a good light on oil and gas. Therefore, we're not going to help. It, the the whole idea is crazy. Even in the in the movie that Tom shot, I didn't it didn't make any sense to me because it ruined everything that already existed. So I'm like, well, if they can do it there on the land, I'm sure someone's messed up in the head enough to think they can do it in the ocean. <laughs> so and me not being uh, into it as much as you guys, that's I just overthink things. But uh, that's fine. It seems like an easy sell. So what's what's the what's the speed bump here? What's why can't we just this makes sense? Like you. you the species are flourishing that are on decline. Like there's just so much positive here. Nothing is negative or affecting the environment around. We've created, uh, the industry has created something beautiful. Like just, what, what's the, what's the holdup? Well, uh, from, from a regulatory perspective, you have one regulatory, two regulatory agencies that deal with offshore oil and gas and department of interior. Then you have the national marine fishery service that does the fishery stuff and, and, uh, and habitat and coral programs and, they just don't seem to work very well mm. one another for one. And so the, the, the process of converting these offshore oil and gas platforms requires going through all these agencies that basically have to touch at some part on the, on the permitting process. So you've got five, I believe it's five federal agencies that, that uh, are involved with, with permitting. And it's just, it's a bureaucratic Murder. Yeah, it just sounds unnecessarily. Talk about overthinking things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot that goes into it. So, so the, the answer is is I think it's going to have to be some some legislation. Be working on uh-huh. with a few members of Congress that will uh, try to make this easier, mm-hmm. tie it to science. We want it to be science, of course, uh, and and hopefully incentivize some of these companies to 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 not try to rush to get them out. We'll give them a little bit of time. There's some good science that says that yes, these are important habitats here. Let's let's all work together. Federal agencies, state agencies, the angling community, the platform owners. Let's these these are valuable. Let's figure out how we can keep them out there. And so we're going to be pursuing that in the next Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is the the current structure, uh, and I mean that the the regulatory structure uh, doesn't prioritize the value of these as, as artificial reefs to the extent that it needs to. It is, you know, this is a liability. It's a burden. Uh, unless we can come up with a good reason and an uh, expedited way to do it, let's, let's get them out of the water. That, that fish, fisheries are not the, the top of mind of the folks that are currently uh, in charge of these. And so that's, I think, where legislation that can help streamline that, make it a smoother process, um, can help, you know, maybe tilt the scales to where reefing becomes a much more viable, uh, expeditious uh, way to ultimately continue these platforms value in the, in the water. So, um, and I'm having a hard time with this. So they'll go sink boats and ships to create habitat and that's okay. They'll cap these oil wells, uh, assuming they're inspected and, and red tape, red tape, right? Everyone gets their hand in that cookie jar and blesses it and says, yeah, we're good to go remove them. So if you get to that point at the wells cap, nothing's going to leach out of it until you're removing the structure. I, Okay, things aren't adding up to me. Is it just because it's a big, ugly structure? I mean, it's underwater. You just told me it's 80 feet under, you know, there's 80 feet of water above to not interfere with uh, ship traffic. And like I just said, they'll purposely go out and sink barges to create habitat. So I don't know, the habitat's already there. There's nothing to create. 
Yeah, I, I think Mike hit on it earlier. It's really an ideological, yeah. philosophical difference between um, folks out there that, again, it goes back to it's oil and gas, it's bad, we got got to get it out. And that's kind of how... It's just that that dialed in, that, that horse Look, blinders. Are Chris, on. liability is a part of it too, right? Li- liability is huge for, for the... The producers, yeah, oil and gas producers. I mean, they don't want the liability if they stop producing; they're no longer profitable. I mean, they're still liable for any if the hurricane were to come through and knock one over, and it pieces of it wash up on the beach or what. Okay, 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 all that. So they want to get those off their books when they can, whether it's out of the water or some on someone else's books. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a that's a cause for concern, right? I mean. You can you can see someone's kind of thought on that. Yep, and that's why you need a process to make yeah. that as smooth and uh, uh. expeditious to make that transfer as possible. Yep. And that's where legislation that Chris has been spending a lot of time on that hopefully we'll see in the near future can help streamline that. And the context is important, and it's understand to, uh, for the general public to hear this to make it important to activate their legislators. Because Chris, you will will go advocate and you will educate people and and work with them to pass good legislation, but it's the constituency that needs to motivate them to do the right thing here. So if, if they, you know, we peel, uh, we're peeling a, an onion, a very big onion, just a couple layers, but just enough context here to say, to get it a little bit and, and make it, make it important to them. I think the people that are in business down there that are affected by it in the wallet get it. Um, but the people probably inland 20, 30 miles, they may, they may not. Well, and the, the other thing is these are, these are located in, what we're talking about are those rigs in, in federal waters, essentially. Mm-hmm. Those, those, those fish, those waters belong to all of us in yeah. the country. I mean, if, if you love the fish. It's a great point. I mean, you, whether you live in Maine or no. Alaska, or want to go try something different from no. halibut that'll pull just as hard, you go to the Gulf of Mexico and run offshore and fish in a little glass platform, you're going to catch something big. I mean, it's, it's, there's such phenomenal fisheries, that it, but it's important to, to help people understand this isn't just a regional issue. This isn't just a Gulf of Mexico issue. This, this is an incredible resource that belonged to, to us. Yeah. Thanks for that. I appreciate you breaking that down to a, a very simple podcast host. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in our remaining minutes here, uh, if you would, give us an update uh, going into the new year, some of the, the big pieces of, of legislation that are out there, things we're trying to get over the finish line that are good, things we're trying to stop from getting over the finish line. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the biggest of the big issues, uh, which we just talked about here at this at this NASC summit, is um, uh, whales. So big mammal, big issue. Um, yeah, we're here on the coast of Delaware. Uh, I don't know if this route. No, we got a good look at a parking lot. No, but opposite direction. Trust me, it looks beautiful. One angle of this hotel faces the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean, um, and uh, we uh, ASA, CSF, and many other groups have been um, banging our heads against the wall for over a year and a half now dealing with this regulation uh, on right whale, the North Atlantic right whale, and um, a draft uh, a draft rule that uh, the National Reef Fisheries Service put out last summer that would create a massive slow speed, which is essentially a de facto closure for all vessels above 35 feet uh, to get offshore for about half of the year, uh, all, uh, all to address the extremely, extremely rare occurrence of vessel strikes in that size class uh, with right whales. We acknowledge that, you know, right whales are critically endangered. There's only about 340 of them left. Uh, As rare as these strikes are, there's been five since 2008. Um, You know, it is something that we as a community have a a responsibility to to help 
address this, but no, the National Marine Fishery Service default is let's just regulate our, 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 our way, hopefully out of this. But the, the rule they came out with is so unworkable. It's based on extremely poor science. There was no collaboration consultation with our, our community going into it. We had no idea this was coming. And uh, it's just, it's really, really bad policy that ultimately isn't going to have any sort of uh, negligible uh, or any sort of a detectable uh, benefit to right whales. So um, we've got a lot of efforts going on in Congress. There's a, a bill called the Protecting Whales, the Economy and Public Safety Act, some combination of those three things, <laughs> um, that uh, the Sportsman's Caucus leadership in the Senate. Uh, and then uh, there's a bipartisan House bill as well that uh, would uh, prevent the National Marine Fishery Service from making any changes to existing speed uh, re uh, speed restrictions until we, we find technology. We really, that technology is not that far out. We're, I think, a, a couple years out from being able to identify in near real time the location of these whales. And then with all the, you know, technology, modern technology, marine electronics, to be able to transmit that information to boaters, you know, on your on your fish finder, um, you, uh, your chart plotter, to where you'll know where these uh, whales are. There can likely still be some regulatory component to that, but at a much smaller scale than the entire Atlantic Ocean, essentially, for half of the year. Um, and But we're going to need Congress's help in this, because to date, NOAA Fisheries has not shown any interest in, in engaging, working with us to uh, have a smarter rule, uh, which is tragic, because, uh, again, what they put out is not going to benefit the whales uh, at all. It's just going to cripple the economy and, and have a devastating impact on, on not just recreational fishing, boating, charter fleet, marinas all up and down the coast. But if you think of the ports uh, and, and, and all the, the, the supplies that come in uh, to where you need vessels to be able to go faster than this, uh, just a massive, massive impact to our economy that uh, we need smarter approaches. And Congress is going to have a role, hopefully, in right-sizing that, that issue. Yeah, and just, just to add to that, uh, to be clear, we as the recreational fishing and boating community absolutely want to do our part, whatever that might be, to protect whales. Of course. To protect I mean, what better way to end an off the, a day of offshore fishing yeah. than to come in and see a North Atlantic right whale on your way in? I mean, how cool would that be? Uh, we would want to uh, protect the whales. But, but as Mike said, well, for what's being proposed now is extremely punitive for virtually no return on, on the conservation value of what they're doing. Let's figure out how to really figure out where these whales are and then let's implement some sort of uh, speed slowdowns around those areas where we know that they are in real. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They migrators, yeah. They spend. I mean, they're so they're it's from Canada. Their their calving grounds are in the South Atlantic. Okay. So, um, and I think that's part of what Noah's trying to get at is sort of um, ranges in which there's predicted whale behavior. I mean, that's uh, artificial intelligence has a ton of potential here to help. But um, I mean, yeah, what we're, what we're saying here is there's only 340 of these left. Rather than just sort of making general assumptions of well, we think in the past whales might have come through this area. It's a big ocean, man. Yeah. 
uh, and therefore let's close this down. There might yeah. not be a whale within a hundred miles, but yet, you know, we're going to put these speed zones in. Uh, What's the idea behind the speed? And I'm only asking from my experience of being out on the Atlantic and seeing many whales from Mickey's to humpbacks and, you know, dolphins and everything in between. My point is you, unless you're up in the, the captain's chair, you don't really see these animals until you're, you're pretty close. Like they don't stand out in a crowd. They, they blend right in. So I, I guess as a outsider looking in on something like this, like, okay, we're going to reduce the speed so we can have a reaction time to avoid hitting these whales. But if you can't see the whale in the first place, aren't you still going to hit it just a slower amount? Yeah, the slower speed, though, is less harmful that, okay. to the whale, okay. so that's part of it. Like but... a propeller hitting it, it's still going to suck. That's somebody that, that uh, fishes out of center consoles quite a bit. If you go 10 knots in uh, a center console fishing boat, which is made to get up on plane, all you're doing is plowing water and your bow is... Yeah, yeah you, you can't see, see anything. Yeah. yeah. That gets back to Noah just not understanding the nature of, of smaller vessels and how they operate. I mean, there's huge human safety concerns with this too. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, to Chris's point of not being able to get up on a plane, especially in rough seas, if storms coming in, you're forced to make that judgment call of, am I going to try and you know, protect the safety of me and my passengers on my boat, or do I worry about getting issued a speeding ticket because I'm in one of these whale protection zones right now? Uh, it's just, uh, it's totally baffling. And again, it's just counterintuitive because as Chris points, not really going to do much to help the whale. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to uh, make um, essentially recreational boating and, and fishing off the Atlantic coast uh, next to impossible. It's a knee-jerk reaction like many other things. It just doesn't, I mean, it's making somebody feel good in another constituency because we did something. Yeah. Just to be clear, the proposed rule is going to allow us that deviation. When seas, when wind speeds exceed 39 knots. So you're 30 miles offshore and the storm's coming, and those winds start to get up to 39 knots, you're, you're already screwed. Because at that point, you're gonna, the seas are going to be five, six yeah. or higher. And it's just a really, creates a really dangerous. I would say, I mean, we spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill talking to members of Congress about this. I don't know that I've talked with any that fully just defend this rule. I mean, everyone, once you start talking through this with them, they recognize like, oh, yeah, this, this, this doesn't sound like the right way to go. We, we figured out in 26 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, I we mean, keep... talked about this for 26 minutes. So yeah, there is a, us. we can keep going on and on about how, how, how bad this rule is. So, uh, you know, it, it, something needs to be changed here. And, and really it's a matter of how do we get from where we are now uh, to hopefully in the next couple of years, maybe sooner, of having that technology in place to, to, to mitigate the need for this type of overreaction, overregulation, and actually do something to help conserve these whales. Um, because, yeah, to Chris's point, we, we had this intrinsic you know, value of, of the marine environment, uh, whether we're fishing for these, these critters or not. Um, you know, it's, it's a part of the experience. You know, we, we want to make sure the entire marine ecosystem is healthy. Not to mention, you know, hitting a whale is not not good for the yeah, boat either. Doesn't you know, seem optimal for the human no, beings on board. It's just catastrophic for everybody involved. So it's a bad situation all the way around. So we we recognize we want to ensure there's as little chance of that as happening as possible. But these massive speed restrictions, that's not the way to go. So, but it's okay to hit a, a humpback or a minky just because there's enough of them. I, I'm look. I'm. I thought you were getting ready to get into offshore wind. Which no, is no, no, no. That's no, not. That's, a, that's another show. Um, <laughs> Wow, man, it's, it's there's just so much to cover and think about and, and overthink about. So, and yeah, but I will say we've got other, you know, plenty of other legislation yeah. going on. There's a, a bill that uh, several of us have been working on on a half year note uh, called the Youth Coastal Fishing Program Act, mm -hmm. uh, which would create a grant program within NOAA to fund programs that uh, take kids, especially from underserved communities, fishing. 
uh, essentially catching NOAA fisheries up with all the other federal land management agencies that do, you know, kids in the parks programs and, and activities, you know, urban, urban programs to connect people with the outdoors. NOAA fisheries doesn't really have anything like that. So this is this a build off of ASA's, uh, take me fishing. You guys very have? much compatible with that. And that, so we, we work with the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation that, that runs uh, those programs. They've got, um, and, you know, state agencies are doing a ton of this work already. Uh, kids, uh, you know, fishing clubs, uh, Boy Scouts. Yeah, there's a lot of great work going on. Uh, this is essentially getting uh, the federal agency, the National Fisheries Service, in that game, too. Awesome. Um, it's a very regulatory-heavy agency, as we've We've talked about here. They don't. Yeah. They don't often focus on the yeah. uh, why we're managing these resources and ensuring that they're healthy and happy, so that people can actually access and enjoy them. Especially future generations uh, can learn about these experiences and opportunities. So uh, that's usually a happy note that I try and compliment the right wheel. Yeah, yeah, no, we'll <laughs> take it. Take the wins where you can. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Parting thoughts, Chris. No, there's a third. Uh, there's there's a lot of things, uh, as Mike mentioned, the, the youth fishing bill. We've got a Map Waters Act for mm-hmm. folks that don't know what that is. We passed the Map Lands Act not too long ago, which basically requires better federal data, digitized data mapped of where we can hunt, yeah. where we can access, and what the regulations are. We wanted to see the same thing on the water side, so we're working on on that so that hopefully we can get to a day where you know your marine electronics or um, or or an app on your phone could tell you not only tell you what you can or can't fish for, but maybe even promote, hey, do you know you can you can fish for mangrove snapper here? Yeah. There's a bunch here. This is this is a um really good good place to bass fish. But we want we want digitized data so that we know where we are and what we can and can't do on, on waters. Um because it's kinda of confusing now. It's cross multiple Yeah, yeah, it's for sure. Uh there's a number of things that'll be coming down the pipe. The American conservation uh, Enhancement Act will be coming up for reauthorization. Why that's important from the fishery side because that has the National Fish Habitat, uh, National Fish Habitat uh, Conservation through Partnerships Act. Because that, yeah, that's we went through a few iterations. Yeah, that sounds right. It's a NIFAT. Uh, yeah. So that's like grassroots uh, grant program that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service kind of a grassroots. There's t- uh, 20 partnerships, fish habitat partnerships out there, span coast to coast that uh, that really look at. At solving some local issues, habitat issues, and improving um, ultimately recreational fishing, and uh, and it needs to be reauthorized and um, lead fishing tackles in there too. Uh, always, yeah, but, 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 yeah. Uh, but there's some other, you know, Chesapeake Bay programs, some good conservation programs that are hopefully going to be part of that that reauthorization as well. Um, yeah, we've got this great America's Great Outdoors Act. I mean, there's. It's amazing working in the fishing community, how many different issues you get to put your your, yeah. your hands on because uh, there's not like this one centralized, you know, this is the law that governs fish, uh, fisheries regulations and everything to do with it. It is state by state, region by region, species yeah. by species, uh, sometimes dealing with the tackle that you can use or the way you can operate your boat, uh, uh, your ability to get on the water. There's there's a lot to it. So oh, yeah. it keeps me and Chris pretty busy. <laughs> Absolutely. Nope. Can't forget about the farm bill. Yeah, yeah. right. I was going to make sure we got that in there. Yeah, yeah farm bill is going to be a, it's it's a hugely important bill for conservation in this country. And, and unfortunately, not, I don't think enough anglers really recognize the value it has for, for fish and water quality. No. Uh, because pretty much every conservation program touches on water quality or preventing soil erosion. So, you know, basically our water quality begins wherever the rain falls. A lot of that's going to fall on private lands. And, and if we can work with farmers to, to make sure that, uh, they're managing their lands well, and 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 that runoff is is as clean as it could be. Then it starts out clean, and we're we're 
good shape. So the farm bill is incredibly, incredibly. And we're going to bring you back, Chris, for uh, another episode just focused on the fishery side of the farm bill so the audience can look forward to that in the very, very near future. That's it, guys. Oh, we can keep going. I'm sure like we could, but we're, we're up against it. And like I said, there's a full agenda, and I got to return you guys to your uh, your fans down there who I had to pull you away from. So thank you so much for offering your time and your thoughts and educating our audience and myself a little bit more. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Fred. Appreciate this opportunity. I'm glad you all are doing this. Uh, help get the word out. Um, I think a podcast is a great forum to to dive into these because it's hard on a lot of these policies issues to just, you know, do a short press release or yeah. a short press statement. I mean, these are really complicated issues. So podcast is a good platform I to learn for this sort of deeper dive. So I'm, I'm glad y'all are doing this. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> uh, I feel so inadequate sitting here in my country accent from the market. No. Oh, you guys sound like, I mean, literally, I feel like I'm on a uh, radio talk show somewhere. That's no. <laughs> y'all, y'all got great. Radio. <laughs> you got authenticity, Chris. That's yeah. heard, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully folks can understand what was. Thanks, guys. Well, if you couldn't tell, and and I do my best with some of these long recording sessions, they get tired of talking. I don't think it detracted from the uh the conversation. You're certainly getting, you know, if you're if you're if you do these kind of things, you know what I'm talking about. If you're in radio or you're doing voiceovers or, you know, whatever it is, you do a podcast, you know, if you're talking for more than a couple hours, a few hours, it gets a, it's a little tiring. So you maybe get a little punchy, but I, I think the, I think that particular conversation went just fine. Um, certainly adds some levity to the conversation. Um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and as always, I enjoy learning. Having been removed from this conversation, be able to think about it for a number of weeks now, I, I still come to the same conclusion that, uh, especially where it comes to Riggs Tarif, that it is, it is as Mike said, it's a paradox. It's, it is this crazy place that some of these people have come to that they're so vehemently against A, that they're willing to destroy B, something they advocate and love so much, just because they're so, they're so tied into this this mindset, I really still remain at a loss. Um, you know, again, all these weeks later, I, I don't see how you have these beautiful ecosystems that are created. I mean, if, if anything, you, you, it's like this this silver lining or something beautiful comes out of something that they, the ominous they. <laughs> deem uh, a negative or something that's so tragic by way of setting up oil um, rigs and, and and pulling that stuff that's made naturally in the earth out uh, for the benefit of, of human beings. Regardless, uh, that's, again, a, a show for another time. The stuff's there. And over time, um, it's created such beauty in a place where there wasn't, as you heard Chris and Mike talk about, like, before these structures were in place, nothing existed except for the muck and any subterranean creatures living in there. But as far as marine life, really didn't have any value. And now, I mean, holy smokes, nature figures it out and creates these amazing ecosystems. Fishing, scuba diving, snorkeling. I, well, I don't know if you're snorkeling all the way out there, but certainly, you know, diving on those those structures and, and just, uh, you know, being able to photograph that if that's what you do. I mean, these are, these are incredible, incredible spaces that have been created out of, out of some, some man-made structure. And again, I'm still, I'm still coming to that point I was making about, you know, 
decommissioned ships, barges, shipwrecks, well, what have you. And, and some of this is purposely done to create reefs, to create habitat. And, and here, this, it's just a byproduct of something that I assume these people certainly didn't think it was going to be a byproduct of, of extracting oil from, from within the earth and the ocean. But here we are. And, uh, well, whatever. I'm beating a dead horse. But it still perplexes me to this day. And I think it'll continue to. Um, we'll keep you posted on this. Hopefully, even though it's an election year, this, this kind of, uh, policy can gain traction and there'll be some sort of movement and, uh, Chris and, and Mike and, and our, our partners will bring you updates on, on how they're fair and on that. It, I mean, again, it seems like a no brainer here to not destroy these, these critical ecosystems that, that are critical now at this point, they're established and, and so many species are dependent upon it and we'll keep you updated touched on the right whale issue up and down the uh, the atlantic coast again another another head scratcher there and one that you know as alluded to in the conversation i think we all want what's best for the whales i think they're uh impressive majestic creatures of the ocean and and we're, i think every human being is in awe by them and we do not want to see uh, certainly any harm by way of, of, of vessel strikes come to them, but, um, you know, these things are the color of the ocean. I mean, it's reduce the speed all you want and, and then given certain, certain circumstances, um, you know, here, here comes this, this human life versus the other life. Um, I don't know. I'm going to take a chance and, and probably get a speeding ticket if, if certain situation uh, presents itself and, and save, uh, save myself and my family. If, if I'm ever putting that again, no one wants to hurt, hurt the, the whales or, or be involved in such a predicament. Cause it, there's no good for, for anyone in that, but alas, uh, another one of those situations will keep you, keep you posted on, uh, see how that all turns out. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed a little policy update. Uh, not things are not all bad. I mean, obviously, you heard Mike talk about um, some initiatives coming forward with getting you know kids and then some recreational fishing done. So there's a lot of there's a lot of positive. I try not to be doom and gloom, and I always have this uh, this little black cloud following me on this program. It's not all bad. There is some really good stuff going on, and there's you know Mike shared some of that with. So again, as we get through this first part of the year in this legislative session and, you know, everything being election year, where we do have those wins, we do have those, those, uh, silver linings or, or shining stars, uh, we'll be sure to bring them to you here and, and update any of the stories we have covered. Make sure you're checking us out on the interwebs. Make sure you're visiting us socially. Check out our partners. ASA does a great job on, uh, on Instagram and Facebook and they have a whole lot of resources there, um, and they're doing good work over there. And we're very, you know, obviously very happy and proud to have them as partners and in, in, in the fight for for what we all enjoy. Housekeeping. I gave you the social plugs. I do want to hip y'all. Grab my notes here. I think we've already alluded to the fact that our next NAS summit at the end of this year is going to be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Which is pretty cool. Um, yours truly, I've never been to Louisiana. Uh, there's only a handful of states I've never been to, so this will be pretty, 
awesome for me personally to get down there and experience the the beauty that is sportsman's paradise in louisiana looking forward to that i'm trying to get you to the dates here we're going to go before the holiday season so november 19th to the 22nd baton rouge louisiana if if you were with us in delaware you know how great of a time that was come on back hang out with us uh it's going to be a great uh a great bunch of days down there in louisiana right before the holidays if you're hearing this and you're so intrigued join us uh, go on to the CSF website, check out the, the page about NASC, ask legislators. If, you're, if, if you knew people that went down to Delaware, if you knew some agency p- personnel that went down there, if you knew some industry people that went down there, ask them. You can call us and ask us, and we'll, we'll, we'll turn you on to some folks that, that can give you a firsthand account. But this is a really unique opportunity to really uh, hear lots of perspectives and, and different points of view from, from different professionals. and and academia as well uh, throughout our space, uh, all huddled up and, and hanging out in one spot for a handful of days. And uh, the conversations are, are just awesome. It's just nothing but learning and great opportunity for networking and collaborating. It's just, it's all very positive. Um, and we have some great outdoor activities uh, that we do at these events. And, and certainly um, Louisiana will provide for great opportunities. As, uh, as this program learns about what those opportunities are going to be and the planning process will bring that to you. Uh, so if you are coming, you can get on an early sign up and not miss out on the opportunities there because, um, you know, many of them are, are limited space. So it's first come, first serve. So um, anyway, NASC is coming. Again, those dates, February 19th to the 22nd, 2024. Go down there, have some fun, get back, eat some turkey. Yeah, most of the states, it's it's after the rut, and so no worries there for the deer hunters. And then I uh, get back home and shoot some ducks, and you know whatever else you got going on. So there's a uh, there's your NASC update. That's gonna do it for this show. Thanks so much for bringing us along. Coming up next on the podcast, guys, I'm gonna uh, introduce you guys to Isabella Mucci. She heads up our collegiate uh, program where we have uh, basically little organizations within the, the college system for, for young folks that are looking to get into policy, looking get into the, the sporting community space, whatever that looks like. So um, Isabel and her program uh, provides for that. So we're going to have her come on with a couple of uh, students, student leaders uh, that she has in, in her system, UMiss and Clemson if I remember right. So we're going to bring that program to you here next. And uh, if, uh, if you've got uh, young people in your life, college students, uh, I think this is up their alley. You're going to want to tune in for the next podcast. You want to turn tune in for all of them, obviously. But especially this one, if you want to get some good information here, pass along to the, uh, the undergrad in your life or, or, or beyond if they're, if they're so inclined. Get involved there and we can put you in touch with uh, Isabella. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Sportsman's Voice podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, your support is crucial, and you can help us out right now by leaving a review, filling in those five stars where available, sharing this episode with friends and family, and engaging with us socially. CSF can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter. Together, 
We can protect the outdoor sports we love and continue to keep you informed wherever you are. That's it for this week. Until next time, see you later.